Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. The disappearance of James Eugene Harrison, a young entrepreneur who set out on a business trip in the winter of 1958 and never returned, signalled a tragic loss for his family. Their life suddenly flipped on its head. Mrs Harrison slowly came to terms with the difficult life of a widow with two young sons to raise. A Californian convict admitted to the murder, complete with a detailed confession, and the whole sorry affair was tied up neatly for police. That was until James Eugene Harrison showed up on the driveway of a suburban house one night, three months later, confused, unsure of how he had moved halfway across the country, and very much alive. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 4, Episode 20, which is a nice round number, which makes me feel good. Uh, Happy Halloween. I hope you all had a good weekend. I'm recording this the day before Halloween and it's going to be going out the day after Halloween. So it's not really Halloween either way, but you get my point. It's the weekend, isn't it? I hope you had a great Halloween. I know this year has been a little bit difficult and it's mostly been cancelled. But, you know, I hope you you made the best of it, whatever you did. Watched a few horror films, whatever you can do. I hope you enjoyed it. This week, I've got an absolute banger of a story for you. It is a bit of a true crimey one. Now, if you're not usually one of the sort of true crime episode fans, you know, you're not your favourite type of kind of Dark Histories episodes, I'm going to say, strap yourself in, because this, I, I mean, I have to say, it's one of the weirdest stories that I've come across in my four years of making this podcast. I don't want to hype it too much, because we all know what happens when you do that, but strap yourself in, that's all I'm going to say. Normally, about this time, I would say sort of thanks to the patrons, and of course, <laughs> thanks to the patrons. But from now on, if you're a patron member, I'm just going to say, hang on right to the end, right after the theme music and everything. I'm, there's going to be a new little section that I'm going to add to the end of episodes now for patrons only. Um, that will be like a little bit more information about how I came across episodes, things like that. A little bit of kind of behind the scenes. Obviously, this episode, I've now kind of, made it longer by talking about it but in future obviously it'll make this beginning section a little shorter you don't have to put up with my voice quite so long before we get into the story and you know there'll be an extra bit for patrons at the end so yeah everyone's a winner anyway with that said let's get on with the story this is james eugene harrison the murder that never was Born on the 15th of October 1926 to Clyde and Adeline Harrison and growing up in the town of Christian, Illinois, James Eugene Harrison had an anonymous upbringing. His life was largely unspectacular until he reached his late teens when the outbreak of the Second World War 
and the US involvement saw him ship out with the Marine Corps, serving three years in the Pacific Theater. Upon his return, he moved to Florida and met the love of his life, Jean, who he married in February of 1939. The couple settled down in their new home on Southwest 34th Street, Miami, and within a year, Jean gave birth to their first son, Jamie. Just one year later, their second son, Michael, was born. Life was ticking along just fine for James Eugene. By the mid-50s, he went into business with his brother, William. The pair built up a window manufacturing business named the Harrison Window Company, and in 1957, they opened a brand new manufacturing plant in Indian River City, a small town in the county of Brevard, Florida, that was consolidated into the city of Titusville in the 1960s. On the 7th of October, 1958, James Eugene left the office of the plant, waving goodbye to his brother as he jumped into his blue and white Edsel station wagon and drove off in the direction of Cocoa Beach, 20 miles to the south of Indian River City, where he had an appointment with a client. Before driving out of the lot, he slipped a bag of cash containing $500 into the glove compartment, closed it back up and drove off out onto the US-1, the main artery road that ran parallel with the Indian River all the way to Cocoa Beach. The afternoon was entirely unspectacular. A little rain had fallen earlier in the day, but otherwise the weather had been only a little warmer than average, starting to drop in the low 20s that was common for October, making it a comfortable drive. That evening, as the sun dropped just below the horizon, Gene Harrison made a call to the Indian City River Police Station. James had still not returned from his business meeting earlier in the day, and it was not like him to not stay out overnight especially without letting her know. Maybe she was just being a warrior, but better to be safe than sorry, she thought. And it turned out, her hunch was right. James had not returned that night, and would not return for some time. As the police took the call, they opened a case that would go on to be one of the most bizarre in the history of Florida, if not the entire United States. Following the lost persons report, the Indian River City Police busied themselves over the following days and they laid on a full, extensive search, communicating with Miami police, who focused on the area around the Harrison's home. Seven days later, the day before James's 32nd birthday, with no clues uncovered as to where her husband may have disappeared to, Jean Harrison had little choice but to fear the worst. It was a fear that was soon to be realised, when Detective Captain Fowler from Jacksonville Police called the Indian River City Police Station. Four days earlier, a blue and white station wagon had been parked in West Union Street and it appeared to have been abandoned. James Harrison's Edsel station wagon was a striking car. Large during a time when most models were trending smaller, its length accommodated three elongated windows ending in tail fins that protruded on either side of the slanted wooden panelled trunk. It was a testament to the early success of the window company that he and his brother had got rolling. It may not have been a Lincoln, but its style and retail price of just a shade over $3,000 gave it a flamboyant and decidedly unpopular air. Holding suspicions that the car had been stolen and dumped, Jacksonville officers decided to check it out, and they found out it was one of only eight registered in the entire state, and that this particular one belonged to James Eugene Harrison. They called up Indian River City Police to inquire after the owner. Two and two were quickly put together, and conclusions were made as to what may have happened to the driver. 
After discovering that James had been missing for the past week, the police pulled the car in and during a search of the interior, the officers pulled up a large rug that had been thrown over the front seats and uncovered a group of bloodstains from what must have been a considerable wound that had bled into the fabric of the seats. It was so much blood that speaking to the press, Detective Captain Fowler made the conclusion that someone must have been murdered in that car. Outside of the ominous bloodstains, the car was not giving up any further secrets. Samples were taken from the stains and sent for analysis and the interior was extensively fingerprinted, turning up only a single set of prints belonging to that of James. Although blood analysis was still fairly primitive in the 1950s, when the results were returned, it was ascertained that it was typo, a further blow to Jean as it was a match for James. The picture was slowly forming of what had happened to James, and Detective Captain Fowler, after speaking with Jean, told the press that the police were working on the assumption that James had been driving home when he had picked up a hitchhiker who had attacked and killed him, dumping his body out in Brevard County, a rural area between Miami and Jacksonville. James had been carrying several gasoline credit cards in the car, but given that none of them had been used, the police drew the conclusion that, whoever the attacker was, he was either a local or that Jacksonville had been their ultimate destination and they had chosen to dump the car once that they had reached the city. During their inquiries surrounding the car in the area of West Union Street, police did manage to uncover a single witness. He claimed to have spotted a man park the car up and loiter around it for a spell before finally leaving the area on foot. The description given of a Caucasian man around 40 years of age, 5 foot 6 tall, slim, dark brown hair and with a red slip over shirt didn't match the known description of James. However, it didn't give police much else to go on either. With Leeds slim on the ground as they were, James's father, Clyde Harrison, offered up a reward of $1,000 for anyone who would come forth with information that might help solve his son's disappearance. Despite the healthy reward offered, $1,000 was a good four months worth of wages for most people in 1958. Nothing came of the offer and the investigation into James's disappearance fell quiet for several weeks. On November the 8th, police were called to a strip of a canal near the 20-mile bend after two fishermen had spotted a body floating in the water nearby a large alligator. After seeing off the local wildlife, they heaved up the body and took it to the local morgue, where it was found to have been chained by the ankles, handcuffed and gagged. There was a single bullet wound in the victim's forehead made by a 32 caliber gun. It looked suspiciously like a gang assassination, and James had not been known to associate in such circles, and sure enough, after further investigation, a tattoo of a flag and shield on the upper right arm confirmed that it was not the body of the missing man, as James had no tattoos at all. As the new year came and went, with still no sign of James, Jean took it upon herself to liquidate the Harrison's window business. It had been a fledgling company, and whilst it had prospered with James's input, in truth, neither Jean nor William had much business savvy. That had always been left to James. Jean sublet the manufacturing plant and warehouse and sold off everything she could, including the furniture from her own home, to make enough money to help her to look after her two children. The family moved back in with Jean's mother, Agnes Weaver, and rented out the family home in Miami, whilst Jean also took a part-time job as a receptionist in the offices of a law firm in efforts to take over the role as the main breadwinner of the family. 
It was a difficult period already as it was with her husband's sudden and unresolved disappearance, but it was made all the worse for Jean, who had relied upon James for earning all the family's money and making all the big decisions in their lives until his disappearance. As matters appeared to turn from bad to worse for the Harrison family, a tragic conclusion to the events was setting itself up on the horizon, which, whilst bringing an element of closure to Jean, was not at all what she had been hoping and praying for for the past three months. On September the 30th, a week before the disappearance of James Eugene Harrison, 36-year-old Ogden Miles, a TV announcer for Sacramento's KBET-TV, disappeared along with his bright red convertible. He had left home on the night of the 30th, telling his wife that he was just nipping out for a brief trip to a nearby house studio, but he had failed to return. The car had proved simple to find, dumped as it was by the side of a busy Sacramento street, but the discovery opened up new questions as the front seats were covered in heavy bloodstains. The urgency of the investigation was further pressed when several of the announcer's business cards, along with his membership card to the health studio that he had visited on the night of his disappearance, also covered in bloodstains, were found discarded next to the Roseville freeway by a 12-year-old local boy and handed into the police. Speculating that the cards were tossed from the window of a car speeding past on the freeway, an extensive search was made of the local area, but with no idea of which way the car would have been driving, it inevitably turned up no new evidence. The first real lead came when police found a bloody chef uniform and an 8-inch bloodstained chef's knife dumped in the bushes by a disused and overgrown patch of land on the roadside in downtown Sacramento. Police had been searching the area after a local policeman reported spotting a man matching Ogden Miles' description loitering in the area at around 4.30am. He had questioned him at the time and then following, let him go about his business. Fingerprints and blood analysis were taken from the knife and from Miles' dumped car, showing that both bloodstains were that of the same type, type A, which matched with Miles. Meanwhile, small threads of the investigation were tying together, linking the evidence with the Sacramento resident who lived nearby to the disused patch of land. An unemployed chef named Roy Victor Olson, an all-points bulletin was promptly issued, whilst local firemen joined in to a combined search of the brush area for further clues, though it turned out nothing new. The net, however, was tightening around Olsen, with police placing watches at all his known friends' locations, as well as in his family home, though he failed to appear. He did make a phone call to his stepfather, apparently whilst intoxicated, but no one claimed to have seen the fugitive since the day before, when his family last saw him leave the house at 7.30 in the morning after his mother had told him to go and find a job. Leads came into the police at a relatively fast click with reports of a man seen hitchhiking out of Sacramento taking them one way, while suspicions that a female friend had been harbouring Roy in her home in central Sacramento took them in completely another direction. Two days later, Arthur Poland, a resident of Antelope, four miles to the south of Roseville, Sacramento, stumbled across the body of Ogden Miles, dumped in a stubble field. Poland had noticed the bitter funk in the air the night before, and he'd set out in the morning to discover the source, leading him to a decomposing corpse. The body had been badly eviscerated from eight deep stab wounds, three to the front and five to the back. His pockets had been split open and his watch was missing. 
with Olsen still remaining the main suspect, police began to believe that the murder was eerily similar to a string of unsolved murders that had taken place over the previous two years, and the investigation followed the train of thought that police were on the trail of a dangerously violent serial killer. Leads continued to come into the station, and each were meticulously checked, but none led to the capture of Olsen, leading detectives to begrudgingly resign to the press that they believed he may have avoided the four-state search that was underway, and that the man was more than likely long gone. With little news on Olsen reaching the press, the papers instead turned to the suspect's grim past. It turned out that Roy Victor Olsen had a long history of trouble with the law, starting at an early age when, at the tender age of seven, he was taken into the police station in response to an incident that he claimed not to have seen. Suspected of lying, he spoke of how the officer punched him in frustration, a move he failed to understand, as he admitted lying but justified it by saying, what else would you expect a kid of seven to do? That running with the police was the entry to a life in and out of custody for Olsen. Within two years, he was sent to a reform school after being arrested for running away from home, skipping school, breaking and entering, and arson after he set fire to the curtains in a neighbour's apartment that he had broken into. He was promptly kicked out of his family home and he spent the majority of the 1950s in and out of jail. In 52, he was arrested in Janesville for burglary and later for federal auto theft, which led to a three-year stint in prison. After his early release, he was once more arrested in 1954 whilst in Alaska for robbery, where he was sent down for a further two years. In 1955, he enjoyed a brief respite from prison and married Shirley Herbert, a Santa Monica barkeep. The pair married in Tijuana, Mexico, and had a child together, though he died just minutes after birth. It was an event that heavily affected Olsen, who left his wife and wrote a poem on the entire affair, a pastime that the press was now thoroughly enjoying by reprinting lines from all sorts of poems and pseudo-psychoanalyzing the fugitive's complex character. The son I wanted most is gone. He passed from us in the morning dawn. An infant tiny from its mother's womb, they placed him gently in his tomb. To lie in peace and beauty rest, in God's kingdom my child is blessed. Within a year, Olsen was married again, this time to a cocktail waitress. But two days later, he was arrested in Santa Monica on the charge of seven counts of robbery and given five years probation. For a couple of years, he appeared to have quietened down, until, in 1958, he appeared on his parents' doorstep in Sacramento in early June. Three months later, he was a wanted man for the murder of Ogden Miles. It took police another 25 days to catch up with Roy Victor Olson, and when they did, he was on the other side of the country, perched on the shores of Lake Michigan in a bar in Milwaukee. He had been drinking the night away, listening to another patron wax lyrical about his military experience. Unbelieving of the man's exploits, Olsen drew out a handgun and challenged him to break it down to prove his cocky credentials. With the firearm being bandied about the place in the hand of a pair of drunks, the quieter residents of the bar took it upon themselves to call the police, who promptly turned up and arrested Olsen for carrying a firearm. Maybe Olsen realised the game was soon to be up, or maybe, like he later explained, he was just tired of running. But on the way to the station, he confessed to having killed Ogden Miles back in Sacramento. And worse yet, 
to the second murder of another man in Seattle named John Wyler. Wyler had previously been found dead in his apartment after being knifed in the back, but until now, the police had not made any connections between this and the murder of Miles. During his confession, Olsen remained calm and cold, describing what he had done to both Miles and Wyler with an unperturbed tone. I put a knife in his back. He got up and said, I don't want to die. I cut him six or eight times, then I wrapped him in the bedspread and put him under the bed. I took seven dollars from his wallet and his cufflinks. Before that, I turned the radio on loud in the apartment to keep the landlord from hearing what was going on. From his confession, a story developed that seemed to show Ogden Miles having a secret double life. He had picked up Olsen around midnight, offered him a lift, apparently to a nearby bar, where the two men had a drink together and then visited the patch of disused land where Miles' body was found for reasons that the press did their very best to tiptoe around, though it's safe to say it probably wasn't to observe the local flora and fauna. A similar story unraveled with Wyler, who had met Olsen in the local YMCA. The pair drank together and then Wyler offered him a place to stay for a few nights. Three nights later, he stabbed him in the back and killed him. The conclusion of Olsen's written confession showed his cold, uncaring attitude towards his crimes starkly. I know that murder is the largest crime one can commit. I know it's punishable by death, yet I do not realise the seriousness of the act in relation to my own life. I regret to say that I feel no remorse for either of my crimes. They have never haunted my mind. I have never seen a vision of my victims asleep or awake, and after those deaths, I have lived as normal as ever, not thinking of them at all. In the eyes of society, I'm a criminal of the highest rank. I have committed the highest of all crimes against my fellow man and what one calls honest society. Now this honest society will have their chance to convict me and put me to death in an honest and lawful manner. I will not plead with society not to. In fact, I urge that they do. I am not afraid to die. After his confession, he told police, I feel better than I have in a long time. Relieved to have alleviated the weight from his chest, Olsen leaned back in his chair. Well, that's it, he told his interviewers. I wonder how many others I've killed. As it turned out, he was still to confess to one further murder following his trial, that of James Eugene Harrison. Three months later, while serving a life sentence in Vacaville Correctional Centre for the murder of the two West Coast knife killings, Roy Victor Olsen made one last confession. After fleeing from Sacramento, Olsen had hitchhiked across the country in his run from the police. Just outside of Jacksonville, James Eugene Harrison was driving his station wagon home following his business meeting in Cocoa Beach when he spotted Olsen hitching along Route 90, pulled over and offered him a lift into town. During the drive, James told Olsen that he was returning home after a business trip as a window salesman. As they were driving south from Jacksonville, they pulled over in some brush by the side of the road to stretch their legs. But when James got back in the car and reached over Olsen to reach the glove compartment, Olsen slammed his head, knocking him unconscious, and then stabbed him in the chest, burying his body along with his papers, watch and the murder weapon in a shallow patch of earth that he dug using the military-style collapsible shovel found in the back of the car. Olsen then drove Harrison's car back to Jacksonville, parked it up and abandoned it 
leaving it to be found by authorities a week later, tying it together with the disappearance of James and prompting the original murder investigation. Kept quiet from the press was one further detail in the confession, that Olsen had not acted alone. When he told police about the killing, he implicated James Elbert Leach Jr., a 21-year-old Tennessee man whom he had met four days earlier. The pair had travelled together on the road, seemingly getting along well until the violent outburst against James. James Albert Leach Jr. was not known to the police and had no prior record of crime, but Olsen told the police he would be hard to miss as he was one of the most tattooed men in America. Police mounted both a search for James Albert Leach and, once more, for the body of James Eugene Harrison. Only this time, they had the aid of Olsen's description as to where he had buried it. As they asked around the local area, police spoke with Mrs. Edward Walters, the owner of a gas station in Titusville and friend of the Harrison family, who confirmed that she had seen the military shovel in the back of the station wagon that morning, cementing Olsen's confession. Search as they might, however, and the body of James was as elusive as ever. A Navy officer was drafted into the search, complete with an electric mine detector, to no avail. Picking up James Leach Jr. was as Olsen had suggested, considerably easier. The FBI arrested him at his parents' house three days later in Jellicoe, Tennessee, where he was living with his parents. His tattoos were as damning as Olsen had described. On his right leg, he had the name Kentucky Kid scratched into his skin. Six months I lived and lost on his right arm. A large panther on his chest below the word crime in large block letters. On his left shoulder, he had a classic born to raise hell, sat above, born to lose on his lower left arm, next to the word death. His left leg bore a skull in a top hat. Despite this appearance, which would have been fairly testy for the 1950s, when tattoos were still commonly associated with gangs, criminals and the general underclass, James Leach Jr. insisted that he was innocent and said that for the whole time that he had spent hitchhiking with Olsen, Never a crossword was said between the pair, nor to anyone on the road. I have no idea why he implicated me in something neither of us did. With nobody found, he could not be charged with the murder, just yet. But the confession from Olsen, the police decided, had been far too detailed to have been a fiction. He just knew too many details concerning the interior of James Eugene Harrison's car, along with his whereabouts on the day of his disappearance. Instead, Whilst waiting for the unearthing of James's body, police jailed Leach in an effort to bide their time. Little did they know that a man was about to show up halfway across the country and turn the whole investigation upside down. Just after 11pm on the evening of January the 23rd, a handful of hours after the FBI had picked up James Leach Jr. in connection with Olsen and the murder of James Eugene Harrison, a clean-shaven, well-dressed man stumbled down an empty suburban street in Phoenix, Arizona. He eyed a couple pulling up on the driveway of one of the houses in their car and approaching, he knocked on the window, asking them if they could drive him to the local police station. Explaining the situation that he had found himself in as best he could, he told them that he had just woken up in a parking lot that evening. The last thing that he could remember was a carjacker jumping into his car as he stopped at a crossing waving a gun round in the back seat and telling him to drive to Jacksonville. Take me there and you won't get hurt, he was told. And then everything went black. 
he could remember nothing more. Fearing that the man on the driveway was crazy, the couple assured the man that they would call the police for him rather than let him inside of their car. And soon enough, Sergeant Earl Moore of the Phoenix Police drove out to see what the problem was. Greeting the policeman with a confused expression, James Eugene Harrison, long thought dead and the victim of murder, eyed the license plate of the patrol car and asked him, Arizona, how did I get here? Once the police took Harrison to the station, his identity was better established. He once more ran through his story, confirming with the police that the clothes that he was wearing were not his own. They had no idea how he came to be in Phoenix with just 67 cents in his pocket and with absolutely no idea where he had been for the previous 110 days. The first job for police was to try and establish the truth of the strange man's identity. After questioning Harrison on the details of his home address, the members of his family's names and his previous occupation, they contacted police in Indian River City and they were told to check for a scar on his back, the result of an earlier operation on his spine in a veterans hospital a year earlier. Sure enough, when they checked, the scar was where they were told it would be, which was proof enough. Perplexed, the police began to try and piece together a story that might make sense and explain where James had been and how he had came to be at the station that night. One of the bigger mental hurdles was the state of Harrison himself. Although he had no wallet and only 67 cents in his pocket, he was clean-shaven and well-dressed. He did not appear to be a man that had been living penniless for over three months. But he had no wallet and he had no money and he was missing both his watch and Mason's ring. The clothing, he said, could not possibly have been his own. He was wearing a plain t-shirt, something he had never worn before and did not even own. Once police established Harrison's identity, they allowed him to call his wife in Miami to give her the more than surprising news that he was not quite as dead as everyone had presumed. Ecstatic after hearing her husband's voice back from the grave, she exclaimed, It's definitely him! Money was wired out to Phoenix for a flight home to Florida and the Harrisons were reunited after three long months. But the story was not over for the police. With their investigation in tatters, it now fell to them to work out exactly what had gone on with Harrison and who, exactly, Olsen had killed. Still quite sure that Olsen had killed someone due to the depths of his confession, the police continued to hold both Olsen in Florida and his partner in crime, James Leach Jr., though the latter was still holding fast to his story that he was innocent. The return of Harrison alive just bolstered his story as far as he was concerned. Confusing matters even more, Olsen now recanted his confession, saying that he'd simply fabricated the whole thing in an effort to get a free trip to Florida. When the press questioned police on where the investigation was at with all the new revelations, they were resigned to answering simply, At the present, we don't know what we're going to do. After Harrison arrived in Florida, police in Jacksonville questioned him extensively for over five hours in an attempt to ascertain both his whereabouts for the past few months and what may have gone on on the day of his disappearance. Throughout the questioning, James maintained that he remembered nothing, though police were suspicious as to why he may have bleached his hair, as they thought that there was a light streak in the front, though he assured them that this was natural and had always been there. But the police were quite sure it did not look natural to them. Harrison was then submitted for a full medical check where fresh scars or signs of a recent wound were searched for from head to toe. 
but none were found. Moving away from James's whereabouts, nothing he could tell them explained the state of his car in Jacksonville either. There was too much blood in that car for somebody not to have been killed or hurt bad. But as far as James was aware, and with Olsen recanting his confession, the entire thing had turned into a complete mystery. We formed no conclusions. We don't know what to think. I'm sure of one thing. Olsen knows too much about this to have picked it up from reading the papers. When the press asked if they were convinced that Harrison's story was true, Lieutenant Sands from Jacksonville Police carefully answered that he had watched Harrison and questioned many people about him, all of whom assured the police that his character was excellent. However, in direct response, he replied, No, not by any means. Working with the FBI, they turned their attention to Phoenix, plastering Harrison's face in the papers and requesting information if anyone had seen or spoken to him in the three months, but no information was forthcoming. Only one witness came forward to the police, and then it only confused matters more. On the 3rd of February, Mrs. Judith Shenard, a Phoenix woman, reported to the police that she had seen James Eugene Harrison before. On the day of his reappearance, she had rode a bus from Los Angeles to Phoenix and had sat next to him for the whole journey. She had recognised his picture in the paper and recognised him instantly, she told them, due to the bleached streak in the front of his hair. She told police that he had been perfectly lucid throughout the trip, talking with her along the journey, and he had given her the impression that he had been living in Los Angeles. When the bus arrived at the Phoenix coach station, just hours before Harrison introduced himself as the missing man to police officers, she parted ways with the man, noticing that he had no luggage on him, only a magazine in his hand, though he appeared to know where he was going, she concluded. As for Harrison himself, he immediately denied the story, saying that he had no recollection of the bus ride and when police suggested that he take a lie detector test, he flatly refused, saying that he was an innocent man and that he had been pushed around too much already. Following the extensive questioning, Harrison decided the time had come to go into seclusion in order to avoid press speculation and interest, and slowly but surely, the investigation, now completely in turmoil, slid away into obscurity. With no body ever found, the suspect recanting his confession, and no further clues as to where James Eugene Harrison had been, the bizarre case slipped frustratingly into the back pages of history. A year later, in 1960, Four young boys were out playing in a derelict field alongside the Jacksonville Expressway when they stumbled upon the remains of a human skeleton. They reported the find to the police who excavated the site and found very little that had survived the shallow grave. A hunting knife was found buried with the body along with the remains of a pair of boots but no other clues as to who the body may have been. Found in the rough area that had been described by Olsen in the earlier investigation into the murder of James Harrison the theory was briefly floated that it may have been Olsen's lost victim, but nothing was ever confirmed. Olsen himself wound up serving a lifetime in jail for the murder of Ogden Miles and John Wyler. He lived behind bars until the mid-90s when he was finally released, living out his last days until his death in 2001, aged 66 years old. After reuniting with his family and disappearing from the public eye, James Eugene Harrison was never heard from again, though marriage records of his son 
suggests the family remained in Florida for at least a further 20 or so years. The mystery of the murder that never was, was never resolved, and only one theory, confused as it was, was ever put forward by the police. They said that perhaps Harrison's carjacking story had been true, and Olsen had been picked up by the carjacker who adopted the identity of Harrison. Olsen had then murdered his driver, believing it to be Harrison, rather than Harrison's earlier attacker. If this theory were true, however, then why was the body never found where Olsen had told police it would be? And where in the world had James Eugene Harrison been for the 110 days that he claimed to have been lost? Summed up in one paper, the mysterious and thoroughly confusing case of the murder of James Eugene Harrison was perhaps best described, The charge was murder. The suspect is in jail, the dead man is alive, and law enforcement officers are up in the air about the whole thing. So that was the story of James Eugene Harrison, and what a story it was. Lots to go through, so we're going to have a little brief bit of capitalism, some short advert breaks, and we will be straight back. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our longtime advertising partner is Audible. And the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories 
and that's Dark Histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really, with options for $1, $3 and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So that was the story of James Eugene Harrison and I hope now you can see why when I was following the threads of that in the newspaper, I was really excited to get this into an episode. I knew it was going to be shorter, but I really wanted to get it in. So what the hell happened there? I have have absolutely no idea. I have a theory. I've got my own theory, but it's it's marred in speculation. So let's go through some sort of kind of points that I found, though. They said that Olsen's confession was too detailed, and I agree. I think he knew way too much. He knew details that were not in the newspapers at the time. And and I'm not sure they were ever in the newspapers until his confession. So he definitely knew too much. You have to believe that he was in Harrison's car at some point. I think we can ascertain that much at least. But then where was the body? He gave them a location of where he said he buried the body and they found nothing. The body that was dug up in 1960, I don't think is the right one. It was only a year later and they only found bones, a pair of boots and a knife. Now, I don't think, not that I'm like an expert, but I don't think in just one year they would have found no other remains. Surely they would have found clothes or, you know, at least some sort of fabric. I mean, the fact that it was just bones, leather and a hunting knife were the only things that basically survived in this grave said to me that it had been there longer than a year. Like I say, I'm, I'm not an expert. I might just be making that up. Might have just pulled that out my butt. I, that, that's my initial thoughts, is that there probably would have been something more in that grave. It was really briefly floated that it was Olsen's victim anyway. It was, uh, you know, like one... Um, when, when this body showed up, it was in the newspapers, and it was pretty much like one paragraph. That was it. And the story disappeared straight after. So, you know, it was only a brief idea because it was in the general vicinity of where he said he buried it. So basically, I think we can... We can say we can assume that he was in the car at some point, and I think it's fairly safe to assume that nobody was ever found. 
It also gets stranger that his fingerprints weren't found in the car at all. So maybe he was wearing gloves, I don't know. But that sort of sparked me as something quite strange. And then the last thing that really sparked me as quite strange was Leach. So James Leach. Now, I'm convinced that he wasn't there. I'm convinced that the story is not true with Leach. So basically, he said at first that he killed James Harrison. And then he went on to say, oh, and I was with this guy, James Leach. Then he said that he killed him and Leach stood and watched with a rock, like waiting with a rock in his hand in case he needed to kind of jump in. But he never did. Leach the whole time said that he was innocent and, and said, like, you know, basically, I don't know what this guy's talking about. We didn't kill anyone. He did hitchhike with him for four days. So I don't doubt that part of the story. I think he hitchhiked with Leach and then I think they, the two parted away. And, and here's my theory, right? I think he hitchhiked with Leach, the two parted ways. I think he then got picked up by Harrison by himself, so Leach wasn't there at this point. I then think and say, this is my theory. Now, it goes into like massive amounts of speculation. It's not a serious theory because there's just too much that I'm sort of making up here, really. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of putting too much of my own narrative into it. So I can't say it's like a serious theory, but it's, a, it's something to... You know, it's a fun thing to think about. It's, it's an idea to throw out there. So in both of the crimes, when he killed Ogden Miles and Wheeler, or Wyler, there were like sexualized aspects to it. The press really tiptoed around it. And in the case of Ogden Miles, they didn't even mention it. They didn't mention that anything might have been going on between the two. Now, why they would have, he would have picked a man up, gone midnight, driven him to a bar, had a drink with him, stranger then driven out into a empty bit of deserted brush is beyond me unless he was picking up a guy to go and get jiggy with him. So he was a married man with two kids, but, you know, that to me says that he was doing the whole dogging thing. You know, truck stop by the side of the road, 1950s America, closet gay, picking up men on the side. The second one, very similar with Wyler, he picked him up, spent three days in his flat and then stabbed him. Now, police sort of said that they had similar crimes of stabbings for a couple of years. And when, and when Olsen did his confession, he said, I wonder how many more I've killed. He could have just been cocky, but what if he himself was closeted, was maybe either struggling with this fact or, you know, with other things. I mean, he was a pretty troubled guy in general. And had gone on a spree of kind of self-loathing where he would meet up with men, stay in their houses or, you know, get picked up and go to truck stops or abandon pieces of the road, get jiggy with them and then murder them, um, you know, out of a kind of self-loathing kind of thing. I think it's not completely out of the realm. And then we get on to what happens with him and James Leach. So he was on the road for four days with James Leach. What if something happened between them and that's why he implicated it in, him into it? Again, like a self-loathing thing. What if the reason they, they stopped being on the road was because they'd been on the road for four days and then later he thought, you know what, I didn't manage to kill that guy, so I'm going to get him in other ways. I'm going to implicate him in this crime. Uh, you know, again, like this kind of self-loathing. That might be like an extra thing, might not have happened, who knows. And then what if he got picked up by Harrison? And this is where my theory kind of comes into it. 
and it starts getting really off the rails and my theory really goes into the realm of like daydreams because I think up till now it's fairly plausible but at this point I think it gets really into the realm of speculation so what if he was then picked up by Harrison Harrison um, again was killed in like brush by the side of the road they'd apparently gone there to stretch their legs which you know you can read into that however you like and then following that things get a little weird I don't really know my theory sort of falls in like two camps either he attacked him and the amnesia story really was true and I I don't know where he'd been but that theory comes into problems later obviously with the Los Angeles bus journey or what if during their time on the road, he'd talked with him. What if one of the men had broached the idea of going and getting a bit friendly by the side of the road and he'd kind of spoke about his life and said, you know, I've got a wife, I've got kids, I'm living a lie. I kind of want to get away from this life. And so he gave his car to Olsen, got on a bus to Los Angeles to start a new life. Olsen then went off and maybe killed someone else, I don't know, in that car, because it was only the blood type that matched James. It wasn't anything else. And that became like a kind of cover story. Like I say, this, this theory gets a little bit tenuous at this point. I'm, like, I'm well aware, don't worry, that my theory here is pure speculation, but I, I kind of feel like I'm onto something with this. So then, why did he come back? So maybe he ran away to Los Angeles, but after three months, it kind of wasn't working out for him. And he thought, I want to go home. So he gets on a bus, goes to Phoenix, spends the entire trip talking to a woman, apparently, who said that he was entirely lucid, and then gets off the bus in Phoenix, which is just a random place, basically, that he got the bus to. Goes up to the first people he sees on the street, says... I don't know where I am, don't know where I've been, concocts his entire story of amnesia, boom, he's home. No consequences. Olsen recants his confession. Not sure why he confessed in the first place, other than to help Harrison. Don't know why he would help him, that's the only thing. Um, but Olsen recants his confession, so that pretty much falls on its face anyway. I don't think, that, I don't think that's a theory that's so out of the realm of possibilities. I think... Maybe there are like details here and there that are probably not right. But I think somewhere along that lines, I think there's definitely elements of that that are definitely what happened. Whether or not it was the full story, who knows? Because, I mean, the other one, the other best thing is that he really was carjacked and he was telling the truth. So if we look at that theory, which is the police's theory at the time, was that he really was telling the truth and they, you know, they bought his amnesia line. So their theory was that he was carjacked, hit on the head, had this amnesia for three months, was then attacked when in Phoenix, where he'd been for three months. Why, how he'd got there or why he'd gone there, no explanations were given. And, that, and they said that's a, perhaps why he woke up with only 67 cents in Phoenix, was perhaps because he got attacked when he was in Phoenix for a second time. And this second attack, jogged his amnesia and woke him back up if you like so that's their theory now that's all well and good and you say okay that sounds a bit wacky but hell i'll go along with it at this point but then that does not explain the bus ride and it does not explain why police were so adamant that they didn't believe him 
When the press said, asked the police if they believed him, they outright said, no, not at all. And they wanted to do a lie detector test. So I don't think police bought his story at all. They just wanted him to take the lie detector test so they could see if what he was saying was true. And he refused it, which on one hand, you can understand if he's an innocent man, you'd say like, no, go away. What do you, you know, I've answered your questions. That's enough. Now I'm going home to my wife who I haven't seen for three months. So on one hand, you can say fair enough. On the other hand, you can say, if you had nothing to hide, why not just quickly run off a lie detector test? You'd spent five hours in questioning. Why not just spend another hour or two and do this lie detector test, get it all over and done with, and then you'll be on your way. You can see both angles of that. I, you know, I think that's both, both. On one hand, I feel for him. And I think after five hours of questioning, I'd probably be annoyed and want to go home as well. On the other hand, you think you, you should have just done it. Interesting. So anyway, if you've got theories and you think they're better than mine, which wouldn't be hard, to be fair, <laughs> feel free to get in touch. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email address to do so. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I thoroughly enjoyed researching it. And I hope it lived up to the high I had at the start where I said it's one of the strangest stories that I've come across in four years of doing Dark Histories because it certainly was. So yeah, that's the story of James Eugene Harrison for you. Like I say, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to get off. If you would say like to contact me, contact at darkhistories.com is the email. Outside of that, you can contact me through social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. And you can also contact me on Discord, which is like our kind of like Dark Histories community on Discord. So you might want to come over on there anyway. You can find details of doing that uh, over on the website, which is darkhistories.com. Aside from that, thanks very much for listening. Like I said at the start, if you're a patron, hang about because I'll be back again. You have to listen to me for a bit longer. Well, you don't have to, but you can. Oh, God. Now, now I'm doubting myself. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay healthy, take care, sleep tight.